One of my favorite TV shows, uh, probably all time, is the series Breaking Bad. It's, it's a little grim in its depiction of, of violence, um, to be fair, but it, it does this incredible thing, just like our text this morning. It uses narrative form to show us the state of, of human hearts. And the beauty of, of narrative, like that show and like the text, is that it does it by showing us more so than it does by telling us. I also love that show as well. I had these crazy ways of introducing. You could see the scene at the start before even the, um, the, the headings and, the, and the, um, the credits and stuff had come up at the start. You would often see a scene from the very end. It was often kind of one of those kind of disturbing things. It makes you really wondering. I was like, whoa, where are they going with that? And how did it possibly get to that point? In series two, there was um, throughout, there was this repeating um, symbol. You'd see this eyeball in the swimming pool. It turned out it was a, a soft toy, an eyeball from a soft toy. But when you're seeing that, it's like, whoa, what is that? It's kind of uncomfortable and disturbing. And so how, how did you come to that point? And throughout that sort of series, you'd work and you'd see there. And I want to take a leaf out of that Breaking Bad playbook today and just start with the final scene of, of a narrative for tonight from, from our scriptures. And work our way back. The, the verse at the end that we're preaching, the end of uh, Numbers 14, and in verse 45, uh, if you have your scriptures with you, if not, I'll, I'll work it through as we go. It says this, Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. Now, this is a tragedy. There's only 23 words here in the English text, and yet if we actually allow ourselves to stop and to pause and to, to reflect on it, rather than just skipping over it, this really should disturb us and, and, and shake us up a little. And say, how on the earth did this happen? I mean, you get a sense of this. Like, this is large group of people, and they've been chased down a hill by their enemy. And this is just any group of people. It's a particular group of people that God has saved and rescued from slavery, um, exiled them out. Um, yeah, there's Exodus coming out. It's, it's his chosen people that were promised uh, this land. And yet here they are being chased down a hill by their enemy and defeated. And this isn't just a sort of defeat where you um, tap out or you cry uncle and then you're allowed to just sort of be left to run away. This is in defeat. They get pursued. And not just pursued, you've got this group of people being chased down there and retreated. And then it says, all the way, even to Hormah. Now we want to throw the English word in there and go back again. The Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to the place of destruction. I mean, that's sobering, isn't it? And yet how on earth did it come to be? And so this afternoon we're going to look at that and go back um, to how do we come to that ending. We're currently preaching uh, through the book of Numbers. And we've been looking um, at the, the book and its Hebrew title is In the Wilderness. And so we've looked and we've seen that this is a journey from the people who have been rescued um, out of Egypt, out of slavery, this great salvation event, 
and they're now working their way to this promised consummation, the end of the journey in the promised land. We've identified that, kind of like uh, this people, we're also a people that lives be, um, between the times of salvation uh, accomplished in the second, the greater exodus, uh, through Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension, uh, salvation from the enemies of sin and death, and this promised return, the consummation uh, and the return of Christ when all things are brought under his lordship and, and renewal of all things. So we've identified that we're in this journey as well in the wilderness. And at this point in, in the early weeks, we saw God's provision, his real faithfulness to what he had promised them. We saw there that he'd given them a, a people. He'd promised and given them his presence. And also there was this uh, priesthood and, and mediation between this holy God and, and this people. And then things turned a little bit sour. In the last few weeks we've been looking and we've noticing there's just disobedience that starts coming from the people. And we looked in the first week and we saw it was disobedience that was caused through just... Um, unfettered desires, unmerited desires that were unrestrained. And then we looked at the week after and we saw the disobedience that came from the sin of envy. And last week, on the verge of the promised land and entry, their the disobedience was caused by a fear of others, maybe a lack of faith in the true power of God and his ability to fulfill what he had promised them. And so that's uh, where we were. And the, and the last time that, that we left these people, uh, they were standing, they were supposed to be in this great event. They were going to be entering uh, the promised land. You think right back to um, Abraham, right back in Genesis 12. This is going to be the, the epitome of everything they've been hoping for. I mean, this is the land that they've been promised. And so they wake up that morning, everything since Genesis 12 has been projecting towards this point. It's like game day in Tallahassee or something, or Ann Arbor. Everyone's there gathered in anticipation. They're getting and they're waiting around Moses for the 12 spies to come back and give their report. You've got to get the sense of this. Everything's moving to this moment. And long story short, they hear a bad report from 10 of the spies hear a good report from two of them. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, but ultimately they fear the other people. They reject God's command to go and enter into the land, and they don't go. And in our Old Testament reading uh, this evening, we just heard the part in between um, where we ended off last week and, and our text Tonight, and it's the judgment of God upon that disobedient generation. He's saying, look, you are the generation that I saved. You experienced me firsthand, saving you out of Egypt and out of slavery. You've seen the way I parted the Red Sea. You've seen and experienced my provision. You've seen my faithfulness. I led you by pillar and by clouds of smoke and got you there and you rejected. And he cast judgment and he says, you to go back to the wilderness. It says, none of you will enter the promised land. You will die in the desert. And we get this great priestly intercessory prayer from Moses again. He, he cries out to the Lord. And the Lord, in his character of someone who's merciful and just, faithful to his covenant promises, he says, well, the two spies uh, and their families, and the younger generation, the little ones who um, the older ones had said, well, they're going to be prey. To, to these people, the Lord said, well, no, they will enter the land. He will be faithful and will continue on. But the older generation, 
uh, disobedient, judgment upon you and commanded them to go to the wilderness. And so we pick up from there and Moses then says, when Moses told these um, words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, well, here we are. We'll go up to the uh, place that the Lord has promised for we've sinned. The first thing that we see upon hearing the judgment and the command of the Lord is that they reject it. They reject his command and they reject the judgment on their sin. At the announcement, yes, they, they go into mourning as they ought. It is something to be mourned. And yet, clearly, nothing's really changed. They, they, they don't believe it. I mean, they think just like a, a simple acknowledgement of the mistake, well, that'll be enough um, to atone for our error. Well, we'll just go up now and, and go and make this, uh, make this right. And so, yes, there's mourning, but there's no true repentance at all. And so they decide to take matters into their own hands, uh, rejecting his command and his judgment upon their sin. Well, it's a good thing that the Lord's made provision for this. He's provided them a mediator. Someone would speak his voice to them. And so Moses, as this provided mediator, he steps in and he speaks to them uh, at this point. So we see in verse 41, uh, Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that won't succeed? He says, Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you've turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. Let's just break down uh, Moses' words here. Because he's actually very clear. It's a great piece of communication. Listen to, to the aspects of, of his address to them. Firstly, he puts the charge against the people. He tells them what they've done wrong. They've transgressed the command of the Lord. And then secondly, he gives them what's the result of this transgression. He says, they won't succeed. And then he gives them a command and and a warning. He says, well, don't go up lest you be struck down. And then finally, he, he gives them a reason why they won't succeed. And he says, you won't succeed because the Lord is not among you. Four simple points, a charge, a result, a warning, and then the reason for that. But Moses, it's, it's interesting how articulate he is when you remember back before the Exodus when he complains, you go, well, I'm inarticulate, I'm, I'm not well spoken. He's clearly learned at this stage. And in the next verse, we're going to see that he's learned even something more in his leadership and communication. If you want to make something really clear, repetition, repeat the point. And so in the next verse, in verse 43, he's going to go back over and restate it. Um, Firstly, he restates the warning. The Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you and you're going to fall by the sword. He repeats the charge against them. You've turned back from following the Lord. And lastly, he repeats the reason why this is all going to fail if they go in their own strength. He says, the Lord will not be with you. That's a great clear message. 
He's really laid it out before them. So you'd hope that him being the Lord's mediator and seeing what they've done through him so far, they would take heed. As we read on, it says, But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. And so the second thing we see, having already rejected the command of the Lord, they already rejected his judgment upon their sin, they now reject the words of God's mediator and even their need for God's presence among them. It's interesting, isn't it, when they'd first refused to go up into this land of milk and honey, this promised land, the reason was they were scared of, of their enemy. And yet all of a sudden now, um, so their sin was you know, a, a lack of um, belief in the power of God and the presence of God and his ability to fulfill his promises. And now they seem to think like, well, we'll cancel out the old sin of disbelieving despair and, and we'll fix it and replace it with a new sin of presumptuous self-confidence and autonomy as though that's going to make amends for it. And so they go off on their own. And as we see at the end, it ends in a real tragedy. It's, it's a devastating defeat, even to the place of destruction. And that's a pretty tough story to read. It's sobering. It's somber as we reflect on it. But we're also reminded that Paul tells us in the New Testament that these stories are recorded for our instruction. And so we look at that and we say, okay, a story like that that is troubling in so many ways is for our instruction. So, so what is it that we today are to take from it? Why don't we take us back to um, the eyeball motif in, in Breaking Bad? So, so throughout that second season, that eyeball motif, it kept on appearing and symbolically it popped up in different scenes, and certainly at the start. And the eyeball was symbolic of the judgment upon Walter White, who was the main character who had turned to drug use and was just wreaking havoc on his own family, his community, and all the, um, just, just brought around. It kept on getting a larger and larger circle of chaos and destruction. And this eyeball was symbolic of that judgment that he was in the unleashing of the carnage on his family and those in his wake. But it also bore witness to the fact that his actions uh, weren't going unseen. The eyeball looked and it showed, it was a constant reminder that he's not autonomous, that he was being seen and acted symbolically in that way. I want to suggest that texts like this one that pop up throughout the Old Testament and also the New Testament. They pop up again and again and they show us that we're not autonomous. Our actions don't go unseen and they serve as a reminder that God's not mocked. He's not to be presumed upon. And so when Paul says they're written for our instruction, these stories, the instruction and this clear, if their sin was to presume upon the Lord and think they could go on their own without him, ignoring his judgment upon their sin, then we're not to presume upon the Lord. Well, if we look and we say, well, 
the sinner's presumption, it's the presumption of the Lord that causes their disobedience. Why don't we take a look at what does that actually mean? What, what is that? I want to suggest that looking at the text in this example, there's, there's four components of presuming upon the Lord. And the first one is to disregard God's word. The second one is to disregard God's judgment of sin. The third, a, a disregard of God's provided mediator. And fourthly, the disregard and the need of God's presence at all. In fact, if we really wanted to summarize that from four down into one, we could probably just look and to say that to presume upon the Lord is to lack a fear of God. And at a heart level, as we look at that through the narrative, really what it's saying, it's a desire for complete autonomy, independent of God's rule. We see throughout the scriptures over and over again, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. So if we look at that, we could say, well, therefore, the counter of that is to walk in presumption of him and therefore to walk in the path of folly. So to walk in wisdom is the path of fullness of life. Um, to walk the, the fear of the Lord is to walk the, the narrow path that leads to life. Then to presume upon the Lord, it's to take the wide path and the wide road that leads to destruction or homer. And so when we're confronted with a text like this one, as uncomfortable as it is and, and sobering as it is, we ought to really pause and consider our own lives. What causes us to live in autonomy and to reject or presume upon the Lord? I wonder what ways do we presume upon the Lord by disregarding his word? Is it one that we just don't think should be there, we just don't like? What ways do we presume upon him by disregarding his judgment of our sin, downplaying it as so it doesn't actually matter or it's really not that bad. Wonder what ways do we presume upon him by disregarding his mediator? Well, finally, in what ways do we presume upon him in our need for his presence? Seems to be in our culture very much we can go independently, do things on our own. We don't actually think we need God in so much of what we do in our weeks. I was thinking about this week. It's a challenging text, and when you take a look at the end of it, what does that actually mean? And the more I looked and the more I reflected on it, this text is really, it's a mirror straight back into my own heart. And I take a look at when I see these people of Israel. I don't know about you, my own heart just jumps back at me. I take a look and I can see those areas in my own life where I'm prone to those th same things how often I can be tempted to live autonomously. And so this text, as a mirror, reflects the sinfulness of my heart and my own need for a saviour, for salvation, for, for mercy. And when we look at a story like this on its own, it, it is somber and it's tough, and yet we have to take it seriously because it's there. But I thought about it and thought, on its own, if that story just stays where it is, it's one of bad news for us. But as we've been 
speaking this week in our catechesis and in our neighborhood groups, and we take a look, this story fits within a greater story, the greater arc of God's awesome narrative of a people who are just disregarding, trying to go independently. So back in the garden, reject his word, reject his, his judgment, and this God that pursues again and again and again, wanting to reconcile himself with us, ourselves to him. And that's what we gather here this week. Every Sunday we come together and we gather and we tell ourselves again this great and better story of the way that God is reconciling even the people like this and like us, like me, together. And as I thought about it, it's like, well, if the presumption of, upon God is to disregard his word, to disregard his judgment of us as sin, to disregard his mediator, and disregard our need for his presence, then the one place each week where we come and we say the complete opposite of all of those things and we respond to Jesus with repentance and faith that's coming to him at the Lord's table. Think about that when we come to the Lord's table. We start off and we've heard that the, the law declared at the start. We confess our sins. We're reminded of his forgiveness. And we pray before we come to the Lord's table, we say, we do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant mercies. We do not presume upon you, Lord. And we think if, if the sin of presumption is to reject God's judgment upon our sin, we take a look and we remember we come forth, we're reminded of the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Jesus, the reality that he took the judgment that was ours in our place so that we would not suffer and face that. We were reminded in the bread and the wine of that. He took our place. We're reminded the fact that we need a mediator and the cost of rejecting a mediator, and yet God has provided the greater mediator than Moses, the one that we need the one who's reconciling us, tearing down the veil of um, separation, hostilities, and bringing us all together. And remember, if the one thing Israel failed and they lacked was because they did not have the Lord's presence with them. We come to the table and Jesus promises to meet us in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine. We promised in Christ and through Christ with the sending of the Holy Spirit, that he will meet us, that he will be with us, will never leave us or forsake us. And so we come not presuming. And yes, we might have suffered defeat in our lives. We might be feeling our own brokenness, the weight of our own sin and the reality of it. And that weight should be re real. But then we take a look to the Lord and what's provided. And we come and we join together the front and we're nourished by him. We're strengthened by him. We're encouraged and gladdened by him. Our hearts are changed as we see the love of this God towards us, the lengths to which he would go for a relationship with us and to bring us good and flourishing life in its fullness. And we worship and we praise. We have our faith strengthened and we're strengthened in our ability and our response of obedience and light of his great love. But as the text reminds us today, and as we pray each week, we must never come presuming upon him.
Amen.